Chapter 9. The Patchwork Quilt In 1843, Harriet Ross began to make a patchwork quilt. She had trouble finding the brilliantly colored pieces of cotton cloth she needed. Sewing the quilt together was even harder. The needle kept slipping through her fingers. Sometimes she didn't know that she had lost it, until she tried to take a stitch and found that she held only a long piece of thread. Time and again she hunted for the needle on the dirt floor of the cabin. It was difficult to find there. Difficult for fingers accustomed to grasping the handle of a broad axe to pick up an object as tiny as a needle. It seemed as though she would never be able to master the art of sewing, to make the needle go through the material in the places where she wanted it to go. It was the hardest task she had ever undertaken. Yet as the quilt pattern developed, she thought it was as beautiful as the wild flowers that grew in the woods and along the edge of the roads. The yellow was like the Jerusalem flower, and the purple suggested motherwort and the white pieces were like water lily, and the varying shades of green represented the leaves of all the plants, and the eternal green of the pine trees. For this was no ordinary quilt, it would be a trousseau, and the entire contents of what under different circumstances would have been a hope chest, Harriet had fallen in love. She was going to marry a young man named John Tubman. He was, he was a tall, well-built fellow, with a ready laugh and a clear, lilting whistle. When she worked on the quilt, head bent, awkward fingers gliding the needle carefully through the material, she experienced a strange, tender feeling that was, that was new to her. The quilt became a symbol of, her, of the life that she would share with John. She thought about him while she sewed, how tall he was, how sweet the sound of his whistling. She was, she was so short, she had to look up to him. She looked up, she looked up to him for another reason, too. He was free. He had always been free. Yet he wanted to marry her, and she was a slave. So she felt humble, too. They were married in 1844. Harry went to live in, the, in his cabin, taking with her one beautiful possession, the patchwork quilt. The knowledge that she was still a slave bothered her more and more. If she were sold, she would be separated from John. She truly loved him. She had asked him how he, he came to be free. He said it was because his mother and father had been freed by their master at the time of the master's death. This made Harriet wonder about her own family, especially about old Rit, who was forever talking about the promises of freedom that had been made to her. She paid five dollars to a lawyer to look up the wills of the various masters to whom old Rit had belonged. It had taken her years to save five dollars. She had hoarded, pe hoarded pennies to accumulate such a sum, but it seemed to her the information she received was well worth the cost. She found that old Rit had originally been willed to a young woman named Mary Peters, Mary Patterson, with the provision that she was to be freed when she, when she was 45. Mary Patterson died shortly afterward, still unmarried. According to the lawyer, old Rit should have been freed long ago. Instead, she remained a slave, and so, of course, her children were slaves. Old Rit had been sold and resold many times. After this, Harriet grew more and more discontented. She felt that she was a slave only because old Rit had been tricked and deceived years ago. Times were hard the year that Harriet married John Tubman, and the next year, too. In the quarter, she heard a great deal of talk about reasons for this. One of the house servants said the trouble was due to the difference in price of the cotton. Dr. Thompson said, had said so. He said cotton brought 13 cents a pound in 1837, when it was high, and slave traders paid as much as a thousand dollars for prime field hands. Then cotton started going down, 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 until now, in 1845, it was bringing only five cents a pound. 
and the slave traders gave less than $500 for a young, strong slaves, for young, strong slaves. Herrick decided that from the dilapidated look of the plantation, fields laying fallow, the big house in need of repair, Doc Thompson would soon be selling slaves again. He wouldn't be able to get much for for them in Maryland, so in spite of the old master's will, he would sell them south. She told John, John Tubman this. Every time she said it, she spoke of going north, of running away, following the North Star. He warned her against such foolishness. What would she find there that she didn't have here? She hired, she hired her time, and so she had a little money of her own. They had a cabin to themselves. Maryland was a good place to live. It never got too cold. There were all the coves and creeks where they could where they could fish and set traps. He said if she went north, she'd freeze to death. Besides, what happened to the ones who went there? None of them came back to tell where what it was like. Why was that? Because they couldn't. They died there. They must have. If they were still alive, they would have returned to show show the way for some of the rest of the slaves. But none returned. None sent back word. What would she have there that she didn't have here? Her reply was always the same. I'd be free. She told him about the dreams she had about the night at, about how night after night she dreamed that men on horseback came riding into the quarter, and then she heard the shrieks and screams of women and children as they were put into the chain gang, and the screaming of the women made her wake up. She would lie there in the dark of the cabin, sweating, feeling cold because the fire was out, and the chill from the dirt floor seemed to have reached her very bones. And, though awake, she could still hear the echo of the screams. When she went back to sleep, she would dream again. This time she was flying. She flew over cotton fields and corn fields, and the corn was ripe, the tassels waving all golden brown in the wind. And then she flew over Cambridge and the chip, the Chop Tank River, and she could see the gleam of the water like a mirror far down under her. And then she came to a mountain and flew over that. At least she had reached a barrier. Sometimes it was a fence, sometimes a river. And she couldn't fly over it. She said, it appeared like I wouldn't have the strength. And just as I was sinking down, there would be ladies all dressed in white over there. They would put out their hands, put out their arms and pull me across. John Tubman disliked these dreams. When she retold them, her husky voice pitched low. She made them sound as though she, they had really happened. He thought this showed how restless and impatient she had become. He laughed at her finally. He said that she must must be related to old Cujo, who was so slow-witted he never never laughed at a funny story until half an hour after it was, after it was told, because only slow-witted person would have the same dream all the time. In spite of this derision, she kept telling him about her dreams. She said that on clear nights, the North Star seemed to beckon to her, she was sure she could follow that star. They could go north together. Then she could be free too. Nothing could part them then. He decided to put put an end to this talk of escape of the north and freedom. He asked that she would what she would do when the sky was dark. Then how would she know which way was north? She couldn't read the signs along the road. She wouldn't know which which way to go. He would not go with her. He was perfectly satisfied where he was. She would be alone, in the dark, in the silence of the deep woods. What would she eat? Where, where would she get food? She started to say, in the woods, she could live a long time on the edible berries and fruit that she had long, long lear ago learned to recognize. 
and yet she had seen many a half-starved runaway back, back in chains, not enough flesh left on him to provide a decent meal for a buzzard. Perhaps she too would starve. She remembered the time she ran away from Miss Susan's and crawled into a pig pen, remembered the squealing and grunting of the pigs, the slop thrown into the trough, and fighting with the pigs, pushing them away to get it, get through the trough. After four days, she had been in, indistinguishable from the pigs, filthy, foul-smelling, and starving. So she had gone back to Miss Susan. The memory of this experience made her avoid John's eyes, not to answer him. Perhaps her silence made him angry. He may have interpreted it as evidence of her stubbornness, her willingness, her utter disregard for all the warnings, and so made a threat which would stop to this put a stop to this crazy talk about freedom. He shouted at her, You take off, and I'll tell the master. I'll tell the master right quick. She stared at him, shocked, thinking he couldn't. He wouldn't. If he told the master that she was missing, she would have been caught before she got off the plantation. John knew what happened to runaways who were caught and brought back. Surely he would not betray his own wife. And yet, she knew that there were slaves who had betrayed other slaves when they tried to escape. Sometimes they told because they were afraid of the master. It was always hard on the ones who were left behind. Sometimes the house servants were the betrayers. They were closest to the masters, known to be tattletales, certain to be rewarded because of their tail-bearing. But John Tubman was free, and free Negroes helped the runaways. It was, it was one of the reasons the masters disliked and distrusted them. Surely John would not deny freedom to her. When he had it himself, perhaps he was afraid he would be held responsible for her escape, afraid the master would think John incited her to run away. Besides, he was satisfied here. He had said so, and men disliked change, or so old Rit had told her, saying also that women thrived on it. Then she thought, frowning, but if a man really loved a woman, wouldn't he be willing to take risks to help her to safety? She shook her head. He must have been joking or speaking through a sudden uncontrollable anger. You don't mean that, she said slowly, but he did mean it. He could tell by the way he looked at her, for the tall young man with the gay laugh and the merry whistle had been replaced by a hostile stranger who glared at her as he said, You just start and see. He knew that She knew that no matter what words she might hear during the rest of her life, she would never again hear anything said that hurt like this. It was as though he had deliberately tried to kill all the trust and love and the deep devotion she had for him. That night, as she lay beside him on the floor of the cabin, she felt he was watching her, waiting to see if this was the night when she would try to leave. From that night on, she was afraid of him. In the spring of the, that same year, Thomas Garrett, Quaker, who since 1822 had been offering food and shelter to runaway slaves in Wilmington, Delaware, was tried and found guilty of breaking the law covering fugitive slaves. Found guilty with him was John Hun, a station master of the Underground Railroad in Middletown, Delaware, and a much younger man. The trial was held in the May term of the United States Court at Newcastle before Chief Justice Taney and Judge Hall. The fines and damages that Garrett had to pay took every dollar of his property. His household effects and all his belongings were sold at public auction. The sheriff who conducted the sale turned to Garrett and said, Thomas, I hope you'll never be caught at this again. Garrett, who was then 60 years old, answered, Friend, I haven't a dollar in the world, but if, 
But if there be a fugitive anywhere on the face of this earth who needs a breakfast, send him to me. During the operation of the Underground Railroad, 2,500 slaves passed through Garrett's station in Wilmington.